1: this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. My guest today is Azizi Seychas. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Population Health at uh, the NYU School of Medicine. So uh Azizi, how are you doing? Thanks for coming today. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for having me. This um
2: fantastic opportunity. Um and congrats to you on all the hard work that you've been doing.
1: Yeah, no problem. Um well, tell me a little bit about uh, your work. I know it's based on sleep, but uh the details are up to you. Tell me about what you do. Sure, no problem so, so I think let me provide a brief overview
2: and explain to you um, and your listeners why is it that I'm interested in sleep so um ideally, I am somewhat I'm a researcher who focuses on behaviors that impact people's health. Um, Particularly, um, there are four behaviors which I consider as four pillars of health. Uh, They are physical activity, diet, stress management, and sleep. And so that's the reason why I focus on sleep, because of the four, sleep um, has been shown to be implicated in Um, Cardiovascular disease, um, cardiometabolic health conditions, brain health, daily function, and just quality of life. And so that's the reason why I focus on sleep, because I take a broad and holistic view of the individual, looking at the individual over a 24-hour period of which sleep is important because we spend on average about a third of our day sleeping. And so I also look at how sleep impacts physical activity, diet, and stress management, and how those impact cardiovascular disease, cardiometabolic health, such as diabetes, obesity, hypertension, and brain health. And brain health, I define as mental health, as well as Asian-related um, diseases, such as neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease.
1: So it's, it's very expansive what you said, so let me break it down a little bit. So what's your general approach? Is it when so individuals come to you for help, or do you have a program that uh, is disseminated to a vast number of people for use? Mm-hmm. That
2: That is an excellent question. That is an excellent question.
1: So what I provided earlier was just a
2: broad stroke in terms of what I'm interested in, but in terms of my day-to-day activities and my work, I am really interested in looking at sleep, physical activity, and diet as prophylactics. What does that mean? Can they prevent the onset? Can they be used to help better manage people with some chronic diseases? So what we generally do um, is we, we have a focus on hard-to-reach disadvantaged communities throughout the country, but we're primarily focused on the New York metropolitan area. What we do is we go out to barbershops, beauty salons, what we consider as non-traditional research locales. We recruit um, participants, oftentimes recruitment um, is very non-traditional. we would go to a health fair. Um, we would hang out with barbers and you know beauticians and you know tell them about um, the condition that we are um, you know our studies about, particularly sleep apnea and hypertension. Um, and 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 we you know increase health literacy and information about that. We consider those strategies to have high impact penetration in the community what we then do is that we screen these participants who might be at risk alongside credible messengers in the community which is why we go to the barbershops we go to people from faith-based organizations because they are more likely to be heard from participants people in the community once we then do that what we do is We say, okay, if you are at risk, here's what we'll do. Here's a curriculum, and we have different forms of curriculum that provides content, text messaging, and videos that help people to be better informed and help them through the continuum of care, whether it be the continuum of care for sleep apnea. Or the a continuum of care for hypertension or
1: diabetes and
2: so what let me we ask try- you, uh,
1: sure, go ahead a quick, quick question here, so I know like you know from my own self, like most people don't know if they're snoring unless someone else tells them they have no idea yes. or if they have apnea um so when you talk to these people, are you looking for people that have medical conditions and you're saying to them, Hey, it may be because you're not sleeping well, or is it people that or you're just saying like uh you know, hey, you you know, because you, you know, I see you're overweight or something like that, you know, I guess you'd be more gracious, um, or you're this or that, and you may be predisposed to these sleep conditions which would lead to these health conditions. Like, which angle do you take that works well with people? Or which angle would they say, get out of here and leave me alone?
2: Sure, great question. Um, so our approach is at the community level. So we screen a wide cross section of participants. And generally, if you're a healthy-ish kind of looking person, we we'll approach you, and if you're interested and you want to hear about what we're doing, then that person can be eligible. We often we sometimes go to clinics. but What we've found is that those, um, those settings may not be the most opportune. Yes, these people are already primed. But oftentimes what we see is that they don't want to listen to us at that time because they are so busy. They don't want to go in and out. However, when we are in their territory, in their setting, in their natural habitat, and I'm sorry to be using those terms, but in many ways we look on it like that because it's really about someone's ecology and being almost like an ethnographer. And we go to okay. them and we say, hey, you know, what do you know about sleep? And they're like, well, you know, I'm I'm always tired. Or someone might say, I, I know nothing. Um, and when we start talking to them about it, and they're like, wow, I didn't know that. And I say, would you like to be screened, for, you know, if you're at risk for sleep apnea? Sometimes people don't know what that is. When we talk to them about snoring, oftentimes what we realize that people think, especially people from outside of the United States, that... You know, snoring is a sign of good deep sleep. And so when we demystify that, they're like, oh, I didn't know that. And then they start reflecting, oh, my uncle, my uncle um, snored a lot. Oh, my aunt snored a lot. Or my husband snores a lot. And, and so they start connecting the dots. And so even though that person may not be at risk for sleep apnea, after we've screened them, they actually serve as conduits, referring other people who they believe might be at risk. And so it's almost as if we're creating like an ecological social network, right? Mm-hmm. Where just by just by just by sharing with those individuals right then and there, they start connecting the dots. And so that's what the, the true impact of community engagement. And and what we do as well is um before we go ahead and do all of that, we have a community steering committee. Now, a community steering committee, uh, it, it consists of about six to eight individuals, where once we decide to launch a project, they are actually beside us in the planning process. And they say, you know what, we think you should actually go to that particular location oh, I think this church or this mosque actually might be better for you. They come along with us and they help us to determine what are the best strategies to impact people, to get people interested. And so we've had tremendous success over the last 10 years doing that. Myself and um, Dr. Gerdin Jean-Louis and some of my other colleagues at NYU have done really pioneering work in that respect.
1: So what, is, what does that mean success? Like you educate people and all that and you help them evangelize about sleeping well. But, you know, what is success to you? Is success finding that's people a that have question. sleep apnea? That's a, that's
2: a, and, that's a great question. Know. That's a great question. So here's what we consider it. And, 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 and I think there are two different forms in which we can determine success, qualitatively and quantitatively. Let's talk quantitatively. So we actually just did... Uh, 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 our own inventory at NYU, where we have, over the last six years or so, we have you know, done about three or so projects. We have actually provided sleep health information to over 3,500 individuals throughout New York City. And that is deep impact. And what I mean by that, it doesn't mean we just counted heads, in a a group of individuals no these are individuals who actually got pamphlets about sleep health and they chatted with us um for about 15 to 20 minutes about sleep and their risk for sleep apnea insomnia and other sleep related disorders here's another way in which we consider success one of our projects we've recognized that You know what, sometimes participants or people in the community don't want to hear from medical professionals. So what we've done, we have trained a cadre of over 30 community health workers who actually are trained in sleep health education. They actually serve as the engine behind one of four NIH-funded clinical trials, whereby they're providing sleep health education as well as social support that allows participants to navigate Mm -hmm. seamlessly the um, sleep apnea continuum of care, which can be very complex and arduous. Let me explain why. Mm -hmm. So when someone is determined that they are at risk, the probability is very low. Why is that so? Oftentimes, it's twofold. Many people are not as educated about their risk for sleep apnea. So, when they go to their physician or their proper or medical providers, they never usually ask. They might say they're fatigued, and that's the only way in which those questions or those issues actually come up. What needs to be reciprocated from medical professionals when someone asks, when, when someone reports fatigue or anything like that, is what is your sleep pattern? And generally, we've found that medical professionals, because one, they're just so busy and they're just going through and trying to get everything checked off, that they don't ask. Additionally, what we've found is that medical professionals aren't well-versed or well-trained in sleep health. And so even though they may have the intuition and inclination to ask such questions, they don't have the necessary training. And so... They oftentimes don't address it or they may just give very vague health hygiene tips, which aren't oftentimes very helpful when they're not actually wedded to some very robust um um you know uh, sleep health curriculum. And so when you have patients not sharing or not asking, and when we're having providers not providing the necessary resources, what happens in that first You know phase of screening is that we find that a lot of folks don't get screened for sleep apnea so here's what we do we have our community health workers or what we call peer sleep health educators we actually have them do that so we remove that pressure we remove those responsibilities from providers we give that to community health workers and they spend time and they are assigned participants, people who are at risk, and they walk with them and they talk with them about their risk and connecting the dots. So for example, what would this look like? So Mr. Jones, who has hypertension over the last five years, he's been on several types of or several classes of antihypertensive medication, but somehow, you know, his blood pressure still remains high. What's going on? Mr. Jones does not realize that he actually has sleep apnea and that might actually be suppressing the effect of his hypertensive medication. So what we have our health educators do is to connect the dots and to show the person, hey, perhaps the non-responsiveness of your blood pressure to that antihypertensive medication may be as a result that you may have untreated sleep apnea let me help you find the words to go to your providers and you know, look about that. If they don't want to do that, and if they want to enroll in one of our studies, we actually facilitate that. So here's what we do, what we find as another bottleneck. We realize that when people do say, hey, I would like to actually go to the physician or the provider and get treatment. Oftentimes where we find that people fall off, is when they find out that they have to do a sleep study in some weird, mysterious place at a clinic, and you're like, I don't want to leave the comforts of my home. Is there a more oh, comfort? way? I,
1: I can give you a quick an- anecdote on that. Um,
2: yes, please.
1: At one point, you know, yeah, I was going to go for a sleep study, and they wanted me to be there and go to sleep at their place at 9 p.m. And I go yeah. to sleep usually at like three in the morning.
0: Exactly. And I don't have my
1: pillows and my bed and all that and be connected to all these sensors. And I said, hell no, I'm not going to sleep at all. That's not going to be representative of what would happen with me. Exactly. Exactly. And so,
2: you know, and, 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 and I appreciate you sharing that because we find so many people telling us that. And even though we have partnered with clinics whereby they can bring, you know, pillows or any other thing that would make them be more relaxed or more comfortable Sometimes, you know, we 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 have, uh, you know, um, spouses, you know, um, you know, they're able to attend. But what we found is and what we decided to do was we said, you know what, let's make a home-based sleep study part of our workflow. And that was guided by, you know, debriefing from previous studies where we found that people dropped off. They were screened, but they didn't go to the clinic and they're like, hey, doc, like, I really don't want to do this, like, and as you rightfully articulated. So we have a home-based study to do that. And so we have a seven-day home study, participants wear devices that checks oximetry and determines risk for sleep apnea. What we've been finding is that about 90% of the people who actually do get, you know, screened, that they do have elevated Um, risk for sleep apnea. So what we want to do, and we find that this is a, a, a very good strategy, is that there are some people who probably don't need to go to the clinic. Let's weed those out with a home study. And so that's what we've been able to do. And so we've had our health educators encouraging people so yes, to say, yes, I want to participate in a home study to determine risk. And so when we have identified them to being at risk based on a home-based speech study, then at that point in time, we refer them. By then, they're already engaged in the process and then realize that this is a serious thing, that my snoring wasn't benign as I had thought, but it's actually a medical condition. And so when we actually then refer them, to a sleep clinic, they're already primed, they're already engaged in the process. And so what we've done is that we have partnered with sleep clinics throughout the New York metropolitan area to assist people to go to the sleep clinic to, one, get diagnosed, as well as, if they are diagnosed, to get referred in terms of a customized treatment. So if it's CPAP or some kind of um, oral um, device um, or sometimes surgery. And so that's what we've been able to do. Now, we've also found that there's another bottleneck. So when people are diagnosed, here's what happens. They may actually get the CPAP, but here's what happens, especially within the first two weeks to four weeks of the CPAP. And CPAP is a continuous positive airway pressure device. Right, right. So what happens is, what happens is, when... What
0: if you could learn about the ketogenic diet? And metabolic therapy from the world's top scientists, physicians, and influencers, and a four-day experience co-hosted by Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, who's been on the Tim Ferriss podcast in Los Angeles, California, January 31st to February 3rd, 2019. If you want to hear about the latest scientific evidence on nutrition and metabolism, and its potential to treat disease, increase longevity, improve athletic performance, and yes, help with weight loss, Metabolic Health Summit is for you. Some of the speakers include Dominic D'Agostino, PhD, Mark Sisson, Suzanne Ryan of Keto Karma, Thomas Seyfried, uh, who studies metabolism and cancer, Aubrey Marcus, Georgia Ede, MD, Matt and Mega of Keto Connect, and many, many more speakers. At this conference, we're gonna dive into the research and learn how to apply it during real-world applications with four days of presentations. There'll be nightly receptions with keto-friendly drinks and appetizers. There'll be a scientific poster session that includes the latest research on ketosis, human optimization, and more. And there'll be new innovative products at the Metabolic Health Summit Keto Expo. You'll get to network with some of the world's most brilliant minds at the Metabolic Health Summit VIP Mixer and Gala Dinner. For physicians, this activity is jointly provided by Cedar sinai Medical Center and the Metabolic Health Initiative. Cedar sinai is accredited by ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. Earn up to 21.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits by attending. If you're a registered dietitian, this event has received prior approval by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics for 18 CPEs. Visit MetabolicHealthSummit.com or click on the banner and get your tickets before they're gone because it's coming soon. Remember, it's in Los Angeles, California, January 31st to February 3rd, 2019. We are only weeks away. This is a must-not-miss seminar.
2: When the DME companies provide the CPAP machines, what we found is that our participants, and, and, and not to their fault, they just take for granted that whatever pressure, air pressure, they were customized at in the clinic, that is the setting that it will be on when they receive it. And so what we've had the health educators do is to educate them and say, this is like a regular medication. You need to read the box. You need to ensure that whatever referral or prescription that you got, that is what the setting is at. And so we empower our participants in that way. And it's critical they do that because oftentimes, many studies have shown this, that the initial rejection of CPAP is partly due to the incongruency in whatever pressure was actually assigned um, um, during during diagnostic tests and, and and the pressure that 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 was set on the CPAP. So there's this you know you know disconnect there, and so either the pressure
1: too um, high. Why not assign like a CPAP buddy, someone that's had one you know you're doing evangelists so why not see if you can get volunteers or incentivize somehow and people that have cpaps that whenever a new person gets a cpap they work with someone that has a cpap for months or years and they can give them oh, advice yes, and tricks that's a and tricks great and tricks. idea we do do that as well So some of our health educators um
2: have sleep apnea themselves and i know a couple of our other colleagues at university of arizona have done that where they've created a peer body system as well um, and, and so we, that's a great idea. We've piloted it and we've had tremendous success as well as some of our other, um, 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 collaborators at the University of Arizona have done so and has had significant successes as well. So that's, you know, a fantastic, fantastic, you know, um, idea. Um, one of the things that just to kind of finish up quickly is that when people do get CPAP, what happens is the first Two or four weeks, they may reject it for several reasons, and we have the health educators help them through that process. But then what we have them do is that we want them to also help these participants and these individuals to increase their chances of adhering. So what we've done is, and a couple of the work that I've been working on is we've tried different strategies. We've tried health educators. Now we're in the space of digital health and this is an area of mine where I use artificial intelligence and machine learning to do so whereby we're providing personalized messaging and curriculum to individuals so that it may optimize Their level of adherence. So that's kind of the space that we're getting into now. Because one of the things we realized was, you know, having health educators is great, but man, if we're supposed to have a scalable intervention, like we need something that is going to be more agile, something more nimble, and something that can be far-reaching. And so we're we're trying that approach now. Um, we don't have any results yet, but I think that it's going to make a significant impact on the level of adherence, which is a huge thing. You know, a huge thing when it when it comes to to, to, to CPAP machine where um particularly cardio, you know, deep in the space of cardiovascular disease, they believe that the, the evidence on the cardiovascular benefits of CPAP is still up in the air because of a an you know, international study, multi-size study called the SAVE trial that showed that it didn't have as much cardiovascular benefits, but it had in terms of patient-centered outcomes, whereby it reduced sleepiness and improved quality of life. The caveat being, though, for that study is that when they looked at the average level of adherence of those people in the study, they only used a CPAP machine for about three hours. So essentially, and let's, if you could follow me here in terms of the logic, essentially, if someone has sleep apnea and they only use a CPAP machine for three hours, it means that that person is only getting three hours of good sleep, hypothetically at most. Show me well, anyone who is healthy who gets three hours of sleep, then I am convinced. So
1: that's one of the... What, 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 one quick question. What are they doing? Are they, is it the first three hours of their sleep and they say, I can't take it and they take it off? Or is it... The end. Of the Good story. question. Good question. It's a combination. Some people get frustrated and, you know,
2: can't tolerate and they take it off, while some people actually fall asleep, right? They fall asleep in the couch. And when they wake up, they realize, oops, I didn't put it on. And then they put it on for the remaining time that they're they're asleep. So there are many different reasons why that is so. Those are the two primary reasons that explain you know, the low adherence usage of, of, of CPAP. But I can tell you this, though. There have been other studies shown, done, published in JAMA, particularly the Hipparica trial, that when people actually did use a CPAP machine for four hours and more, significant improvements in cardiovascular disease. Blood pressure levels dropped. Their lipid profiles were improved. Fantastic. So it shows that CPAP does work but it only works if you adhere to it. Hmm.
1: You know, it's funny. I thought as you were talking, since you say you deal with churches and barbershops and all that, if you had shills, like you had someone in the audience, you know, at a church and they, you pay them to go there and they deliberately start snoring during the sermon, but it's all planned. <laughs> and the, the preacher stops and says, you hear that? And then talks about the importance of sleep. <laughs> yes.
2: You know, that's funny enough. I had a colleague who tried to do something quite similar. Um, you know, you know, I have several colleagues, but in with regards to stroke, whereby the they created, um, you know, these elaborate um, videos and and they've tried to find text in the Bible that focuses on sleep to to, to show that sleep is very very important. And mm. and so you know, you you have to be creative to reach people. You know, ultimately right. it's really behavioral change. How can you change behavior? How can you get people to say, hey, yes, I have this issue. Yes, I'm going to seek the necessary treatment. Yes, I'm going to stick with this treatment. It's all behavioral. You know, yes, it's biological. Yes, it's medical. Yes, it's clinical. Those are just outcomes, right? And so some people may not even care about what we found is that there's some people who say, oh, yeah, blood pressure, whatever, I don't care. And I'm being flippant about it. They care more about how the sleep impacts your quality of life their sex drive the headaches that they would normally get those are, are, are on their memory being able to remember things being able to not have this cloud over them this idea called brain fog people care more about that and if you tell them hey if you use this or if you treat whatever sleep issue or whatever hey yes they're more likely to use it
1: and i would too i wouldn't blame them so um it sounds like you're testing and and piloting and, you know, working your way towards a better and better solution. So what do you, what what's the new stuff that you're going to be trying out over the next six months or a year? And, you know, what do you think is going to make like a huge leap forward in the number of people you can help? Sure. Good point. So
2: I alluded to it earlier regarding
1: the, in the area
2: of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and mobile health. Um, in terms of my work, you know, I, you know, discussed you know, we're really interested in Improving and optimizing adherence to treatment. In this case, sleep apnea treatment, i.e. CPAP. And so what we find is that we want people, you know, similar to, 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 you know, a Netflix profile. Netflix learns the type of movies that you like, the genre of movies that you like. What we want to do is instead of just throwing the kitchen sink at everyone we're discovering and we're testing novel strategies, novel information, novel content that will improve and optimize adherence. It's a personalized approach. And we have a very elaborate strategy to do that. It's an idea that we've come up with at NYU. We're you know, happy to know that these are some principles that have been used in marketing science and artificial intelligence. And, and and so we want it to be fully digitized. So when someone gets the CPAP machine, we want those messages to have continuous data streams, we want those to be connected with their wearables as well. Um and, and, and to provide these personalized messages and strategies that can give people a high degree of insight as to how their actions impact them in the immediate and long term and over a period of time, as well as using those insights to help modify behavior, particularly having them lead healthier lives and to really strive for wellness.
1: Okay. Very good. Yeah. One thing to point out to you is uh, you said you've counseled about 3,500 people, but each of those people have families and they know, I don't know, on average, how many other people. So the number you probably impacted, I would say, is triple that, maybe four times that, if yes. it's done right. Yes, yes, I think you're absolutely right.
2: And, you know, gosh, we would love to do a social network of this, you know, whereby we want to be able to, and we've kind of done this with our health educators because, in many ways, if you look at our health educators as uh, a part of a network, these are the very nodal people, what we call social influencers. And so if we can train more of those people, if we could prime more of those people, can you imagine if we have these people on, 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 on social networks, you know, being ambassadors for sleep health, can you imagine how many people they can reach um, just digitally and through the internet? But then at the same time, you're right. Talking to uh, uh, Ms. Jones means that we probably would have spoken to her spouse her children if she has any, her mother, her parents. It's it's so, so it's far reaching. You know, it is far reaching. And and I hope too through um this 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 podcast that it could have a ripple effect as well. You know, because sleep is important. Unfortunately it's one of the most silent behaviors but also the most impactful. Something I always say to get people to turn around their sleep strategy and how their attitude about sleep. I tell people, your day starts with sleep. Your day doesn't end with sleep. Mm. Because the, 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 the sleep that you get the night before impacts everything the following day. It impacts what you eat for breakfast, how you metabolize that breakfast, how much energy you have. Do you want to play with your kids? Do you feel like, man, I hate my boss you feel irritable, those are important things, right?
1: And so your day starts with sleep. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you is, uh, right, what, what conditions are affected by poor sleep and the non-obvious ones? You know, so maybe if, like, you know, if we can just give a list like you gave before, the obvious ones or the ones that are obvious to you, and then the ones that are, like, really surprising to people. That, that affect their sleep? Um, when they have poor sleep, what does it do to them? What what does it do to them? Okay, okay, thank you. For yeah, that. you know, like, uh, again, some obvious effects that we've, you know, like, you can list them, you know, clinical yeah, effects, no, medical health, effects. And what's stuff? some non obvious ones, yeah. ones?
2: Yeah, but headaches. I mean, <laughs> headaches are important. I mean, you know, I know in my family, you know, um, folks suffer from headaches, and what we have found with with this particular family member is that when they have turned around their sleep habits that they no longer have these headaches and the doctors were trying to figure out where was it migraine was it this was it that and just by shifting our road, getting more sleep going to bed earlier um, impacted it so headaches is an important area you know they're 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 tolerably enough, but they're annoying enough <laughs> and I think you know people respond to that um um sex drive libido it's huge i mean that's one area that especially when we speak to both you know men and women, all genders that is important you know um you know that 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 having more sleep means that you have more of an appetite um that is Absolutely crucial for people, especially when people are relational. Um, just also just in terms of people's attitude towards just life, and I know this is more existential. But as I said, it's like when you're sleep deprived that it impacts your mood, it impacts your cognition, and when you put those two together, man, you know here is it a dark dreary day can be the worst thing ever, or it could just be a nice crisp winter day. And so those are some areas in which sleep deprivation impacts. It also impacts your functioning, your ability to think and to learn and to process new information. This is critical. And I've, I've suffered from this. When, whenever I'm sleep deprived, and I'm trying to write something, or I'm trying to write emails, oh, man, I feel like it's a struggle just to string along sentences. Those are yeah, some critical, it's it's, it's it's key, you know? The one thing I've also found, too, is
1: your reflex.
2: And I'm giving non-traditional, because everybody knows about the big ones, the health ones, right? But your right, reflex, that's what I want to ask you. Yeah, your reflexes either in terms of your gait, in terms of how you walk. I mean, when you're sleep deprived, you really don't walk very straight. You're more likely to have falls. That's key, right? Um, mm. Your reflexes when you're driving, they're highly suppressed when you're sleep deprived. Those are huge things. Those are absolutely critical. Um and, and so we actually speak about these things because when you talk about hypertension, it seems like this distant disease that oftentimes people say, oh, not me, I don't have hypertension. And it doesn't really hit them. But when you talk about everyday functioning, that's when you get people. Because when people hear that they're like, oh, wow, that's what that was? That's, I couldn't concentrate. Oh, wow. Uh, You know, and and, and so, you know, when we share this with people, they're more open and more receptive um, and and they're more likely to change their behaviors. And if they don't change their behaviors, and to use your word, they evangelize. And we love that.
1: Mm. Yeah, what I've learned is if I don't feel good for whatever reason, you know, I'm not a good husband. I'm not a good father. I'm not a good friend. I'm not a good coworker. It affects all your relationships. So, you know, bad sleep is the exact same thing. Like you unintentionally are, you know, short or mean to the people around you and it just affects everyone around you. So. It is. It is. And, and you know, I am not telling your audience that you need to go around and
2: say and explain away the reason why, you know, you, you're a bad husband or spouse or you make everyone's life miserable. I am not saying that, but it, it is a huge contributing factor because you're not patient, you cannot be patient. If you're sleep deprived, you're not going to be patient because patience is not just an emotional relational thing. Patience, if you want to look at it scientifically, you are exercising some high level cognitive functioning. Somebody's saying something to you that is annoying and you, or you just disagree with, and so how are you going to respond to that? You can tell the person, yes, you're the worst, You have no sense at all. You could do that, right? Or you could say, hmm, let me try and process what this person is trying to say. And let me provide my best suggestion and interpretation lovingly. There's a lot of cognitive juices we have exercised just to do that. And so when you're sleep deprived, you don't have the bandwidth to do it. You don't. And also another area just to be health related, and I oftentimes say this, and I see this with my kids. Whenever my kids are sleep deprived, I know this, especially in the wintertime, they're bound to get sick. Because it mm, really diminishes your, your immune system. system. And oftentimes yeah, the... people say, Oh yeah, I just I need to like do this, I need to do better, or I just need to exercise and exercise is good too. But do people know and I want your audience to know this is that You know, if you don't get enough sleep, the health benefits that you would get from physical activity is actually diminished. If not, Mm. it can be even reversed. By that I mean physical activity and exercise can be stressful on the body if you don't get enough sleep. And there have been studies that have shown that. Where people where people, you know, they're sleep deprived and they exercise religiously versus people who slept. And exercise the same amount. Who had better health outcomes? The people who slept well and the people who exercised, not the people who didn't sleep well and exercise. So it goes to show that those positive benefits that you can get from physical activity can be reversed if not suppressed or thwarted um, hmm. by by lack of sleep. People don't know that, and so that's the kind of work that we're doing, you know, at NYU. Okay.
1: Well, very good. Well, we're out of time, but uh, what what are some resources for listeners? So if they live in a New York metropolitan area, what are resources for them? And what sure. if they're outside of that area? What if they're outside sure. of the area, what do they do then?
2: Sure. So always contact me. They can contact me um, at Aziz NYU Langone Health, um, or, you know, they can go on our Facebook um, page uh, at NYU, um, in addition to that, if there are more interna- uh, more national websites, National Sleep Foundation, National Institutes of Health, American Sleep Apnea Association, those are some wonderful, 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 wonderful resources that people can actually um, get a lot from. Um, and I'm on Twitter as well, at SeixasDoc, it's a at S-E-I-X-A-S-D-R, happy to, to chat with anyone if they have any questions about sleep
1: or health-related issues. That's great. It's easy. I, I appreciate you coming, and I love your novel approach to this, and thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. Keep up the fantastic work.
0: You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain